about employee engagement, it's often positioned as a problem with the employee. Like, why aren't my employees engaged? Why is it their problem, right? Like, in reality, employees don't choose to disengage. Like, nobody wakes up and says, ooh, I want to go to work and be bored, frustrated, anxious, excluded. Like, no one says that. No one does that. That's not anyone's intention. Welcome to Work Matters, where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. I am your host, Thomas Bertels. Today, we are talking with Tunil Miller about employee experience design. Tunil is a management consultant, I.O. psychologist, and workplace expert who is on a mission to create organizations where people can do the best work of their lives. She is the founder of EXT, Experience and Transformation, where she partners with leaders to drive the optimal performance of their people and organizations. You can learn more about her work at tonilmiller.com or at experienceandtransformation.com. In our conversation today, we discuss what leaders can do to create an organization where people can do the best work of their lives, why leaders should think about their company as a product and put employees at the center, how to address the employee engagement crisis, and what it will take to get employees to return to the office. As always, if you enjoy this conversation, Please subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tunil Miller. So Tunil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Thomas. I appreciate it. I love how you define your mission as creating organizations where people can do the best work of their lives. What does it take for people to do the best works of their lives? That is a good question. I think that's the million billion dollar question on all the leaders and CEOs minds and HR folks minds these days. Um, the way that I've think about it based on all my experience, because I've had a very interesting kind of vantage points in the large firms, in startups, executive coaching, as a psychologist, like kind of all these different um, lenses I can look through. I think the way I would define it would be, you know, really thinking of your organization as a product for your people on some level. So when I say that, you want to make sure it's relevant, right? You want to make sure that like there isn't a big gap between people's daily experience in your organization and the world outside of it. You know, for example, today everybody's used to consumer grade technology, very personalized, frictionless experiences when they're doing Amazon or Netflix or anything outside of work. That's kind of how it is now. And then a lot of times they'll go to work and it's like 1985 on the inside. And it's not just technology, right? It's like bureaucracy, hierarchy, all kinds of things that are just very different inside these organizations because they haven't done a good job of updating these practices. And so that's one piece there is just being relevant, I think. Um, the other part too, is when you think about it again, as a product for your people, if your organization is a product, you want to really put the employee at the center of it, right? Like make them the hero of the story. Like you would make the customer the hero of the story. Um, and so in that regard, you want to ask like, you know, do they know how to use it? If the organization is a product, do they know how to use it? Is it simple? Are there pain points? Are there bugs, right? Like how does it make them feel? Kind of all those questions that you would ask about the customer experience. You also want to think about that from the employee's uh, perspective. And then there's a couple other things, too. If you think about, like, any great product or service, it solves a problem for the customer, right? Or it it meets a need of some sort. And so if you think about that in terms of employees, think about, like, Maslow's hierarchy. That's a good 
foundational structure that we're all pretty familiar with. If you think about like needs for well-being, social needs of connection and community or esteem needs like being treated like an adult, you know, recognition, actualization needs like um, growth and development. Or if you think of like the transcendence need of like meaning and purpose, those are all needs that an organization provides a really great structure actually to be meeting for people. And then finally, I think the last, you know, piece of how I think about an organization as a product for people would be, you know, you want to differentiate your organization, right? Because today, a lot of organizations are kind of just commoditized in many ways. Um, oh, we all have values on the wall, and we include, you know, integrity in there and that sort of thing. And that, that doesn't really help any, anyone. So I think that when you want to differentiate your organization, think about the things that only your organization can give them or only your organization can do. And a lot of times that comes down to your specific organizational culture, because, right, that's very dependent on who's in it and how things happen and what's allowed and what's not. So no other company could have the same culture as you. And then um, organizational purpose. That's another thing, right? If you have a very authentic, um, ingrained, embedded purpose, that's also something that will differentiate your organization. So I'll stop there just for a moment. But that's, those are some of the ways that I tend to think about um, helping people do the best work of their lives. I love that. I especially love the idea of like looking at the organization as a product. One of the other guests that we had on, Dart Lindsley, looked at it more as like, you know, define the job as the product. And what I what I think that opens up is really a question around design, right? How do we design a product with intention versus just letting it happen? But if we follow that line of questioning, I guess we probably have to admit that if engagement levels are stuck at 30%, right, which they've been for for a while now, then 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 there's probably something wrong with the product. So what are people getting wrong with the, with the work product or the job product? I actually wrote an article on LinkedIn, I think about a month ago, somewhat on this topic. And what I, I'm researching, I'm writing a book at the moment, so I've been doing a lot of additional research on that. And some of the things that I had learned that I think would answer this question is, you know, when you think about, first of all, when we think about employee engagement, it's often positioned as a problem with the employee. Like, why aren't my employees engaged? why is it their problem, right? Like in reality, employees don't choose to disengage. Like nobody wakes up and says, ooh, I want to go to work and be bored, frustrated, anxious, excluded. Like no one says that. No one does that. That's not anyone's intention. And so I think disengagement is really um, a coping mechanism. If you think about, you know, psychologically, like any human being that's healthy would imply a coping mechanism like disengagement, I think, to avoid things like cognitive dissonance. And again, that comes from like that mental discomfort of having to function in a direct environment or experience that doesn't match the reality they know to be true. And so one of those things would be like we mentioned at the beginning of the call is like if the inside of your organization feels like a totally different reality than the outside world, that's one way that I think disengages people. Um, I think the other part is like, you know, if, you, if they're in situations where they feel stifled, like they're not getting autonomy, they don't feel like they belong, there's not appreciation or otherwise kind of finding themselves in this warped experience basically inside the organization. I think that that's a big piece there. Um, and then, you know, some of the things that we, we can see every day, you know, that, that I think, again, the organization unintentionally does this. I don't think any leader wakes up and says, I want to go treat people terribly either. So it's those things that we just mentioned. And then it's things like, um, 
you know, when you think about how employees are kind of treated, a lot of times they're treated as cogs in the machine, right? Like the machine is the focus, the, the company is the star, you have to fit into it, right? And I don't care if there's a lot of bureaucracy, you got to figure it out. I don't care if there's a lot of friction, employees, you got to figure it out. So, and then the other part too, is like a lot of times if organizations don't make their, their vision, their purpose, their mission and all that stuff very clear and kind of co-created with employees, it's like they're taking them along for the ride, but nobody knows where we're going or why we're doing it. And that causes, I think, a lot of friction as well. So I'd love your thoughts if you've heard things like that or if you've seen that as well. No, I think that's super. I think that's super on point. And especially what, what you said about co-creation. I think there's like this assumption that, that leaders think that they got to do it all by themselves. We designed this, this great work experience. Why don't they, right? Why don't they like it to your point, right? There got to be something wrong with them, right? And I think the answer in, in my view lies in that we actually don't allow people to take ownership for the work product and shape it and get their um, ideas incorporated. Um, and a friend of mine puts it this way, right? Nobody washes a rental car, right? <laughs> In the history of rental cars, nobody ever brought a car back and said, I, I, I took the liberty of just washing it. And, you know, he, here it is. So I think if we want people to take ownership, they got to feel like owners of the work. And, and I think that requires a very different dialogue. And, and I think, I think that's probably, in my view, where I think a lot of leaders are afraid to open that door and, and, and invite people into that conversation. But, but what do you see in that, in that regard? Certainly. And I think that this comes from just one of the biggest things right now is we need a new type of leader to be successful in this new environment. And I'm, when I say new environment, I don't just mean post-pandemic. I mean, in this VUCA world that we're in, it was already you know moving too quickly and, and CEOs and leaders were never close enough to the client and the customers and, and, and they weren't coders, they weren't software developers. And so in this new world, even pre-pandemic, we need everybody in the organization to have the transparency into how it works, what we're doing, why we're doing it, co-owning it, all that stuff to your point, accountability, ownership, all that, because they're closer to the work, they're closer to the customer, they're doing the work, they're delivering your brand and organization every day. If they don't know all the answers to all those things and the why and the what and who, how and what, it's really hard for them to do an amazing job, create an, a, an amazing customer experience. And then now post-pandemic especially, I mean, all the things that you know leaders used to do back in the day probably worked fine for a time. And I understand that, but we're definitely not in that time anymore. And so there's a lot of different things that leaders need to be doing differently today. I think the pandemic gave us all a lot of time to sit at home and, and think about right what we want from work and what we get from work. And you know, oftentimes found that right, there's a big gap in, in between those two ends. So if we need like a new type of leader, um, kind of like what would you, I mean, this this is partially an education question, right? Because I think right now we're, like we're taking high performers and you know, we're putting them into managerial positions, which might or might not fit. We take the best salesperson, they become the head of the sales region. We really don't prepare people to take uh, a more active role in designing work to be, you know, fit for people, right? To be, to bring out the best in people. But if, if you, you know, would wave a magic wand, what would you put like, into that managerial education backpack? What should people learn about and, 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 and get training in, develop mastery in when it comes to, to work design? Yeah, I think first you totally hit the head. Besides different um, things that the new leader needs to do or have or be, which I'll jump into in a second, I think the other part is at a more systematic level. 
promoting the great salesperson or the rock star individual contributor to be a manager and then not not only doing that, number one, but then also not training them, not giving them the tools they need and not even lots of times asking them if they want to lead people, um, I think is the big, one of the biggest mistakes. And that's at, a, again, a systematic organizational level. Of, that's just how our career paths work, right? For most organizations, minus a few, they don't have dual or several different um levels of career paths where it's like, I just want to be a subject matter expert, or I want to be an individual contributor, but I still want to get promoted. I still want to get raises. I still want to be progressing. Most organizations don't have that. And I think a few of them do. And I think that that's actually the way to go at a systematic level to kind of mitigate this and make sure that we have people that are leading people that really want to lead them and are really good at leading them and have been trained to lead them. So there's that piece at a system level. Um, But then if you go down, like you said, to the manager at a leader level, I think one thing that I like to kind of phrase it this way, where it's like, you know, the role of a leader today is no longer about basking in the glory on the top of a throne. Um, today's workforce, just they just will not bow down to that hierarchy, and they're not impressed by that. And so this coupled with the fact that what we talked about a minute ago, in the sense where, you know, it's a VUCA world, they don't, leaders aren't coding, they don't have all the answers, nor should they anymore. The, the leader is no longer that expert in the room who has all the answers. Now it's like you need to be facilitative of other people who have the answers and who are closer to the work and the and the product. And so I think a few things that I've seen that, that work really well in this new world of leadership would be, number one, managing yourself. I think um, a lot of our current problems in the world wouldn't exist if people who were in charge were better able to check in with themselves first and make sure they're not operating from ego, make sure they got enough sleep the night before. All the things that sound very basic, but they actually are the foundation, I think, of you know really modulating their behavior and not pushing it off onto others um, and just being strategic about that. So I think that's like the starting place is just being better at managing oneself. And then after that, of course, again, being that facilitative leader. So you you are facilitating the greatness of your coders and your software developers and your product owners and all the different people that have these amazing expertise areas that you don't have as a leader usually now. You're facilitating the greatness for, of them, right? By getting things out of the way, by um, coaching and developing them, by having their back, like all those things. I think another big thing is really being a meaning maker, right? I think that one of the most important jobs of a manager or a leader is, again, kind of getting at what we talked about a little bit earlier, is connecting the dots between what your people do on a day-to-day basis, even if it's spreadsheets, finding ways to connect that to the broader picture and the impact that has on uh, the team, the customer, the organization, the community, the world even. Um, I think it was Bill George, who is a former CEO of Medtronic, and one of the things that he used to do, he did a lot of these great practices, but one of the things he used to do is that at the holiday party, I guess he would bring in some of the patients who have would come in on stage and, and tell their stories of how the employees' work had impacted them and made their lives better. Um, you know, things like that, telling stories across the organization, just always connecting those dots. I think the other piece, especially post-pandemic, is just being really authentic, right? And just being aligned and showing people that you care about them. Um, there's a lot of ways that different leaders with different personalities can find a way to do that, but it's it's not difficult. It's just it takes a little bit more time to go, you know, slow down for a moment to go faster later sort of a thing. And then with that, I think, you know, showing that vulnerability, right, and creating just an abundance of psychological safety in the environment. I think that's another one, too. And then, you know, again, as you mentioned earlier, too, listening to people, being comfortable co-creating with them, um, telling them you don't have the answers, right, and you need them to help you. I mean, there's, that's really, really powerful. So what do you think? Have you heard a couple of other good nuggets there? Or No, I think that's all spot on, right? I mean, my personal background is I come out of sort of the the process um, design and process improvement space. 
And so the way I look at it is is actually that oftentimes the way that we design the work, right, or like how, how work gets done um, is oftentimes uh, quite flawed. Right? The work is very fragmented, so you need like 19 people to hire a, a new employee or to change a light bulb. And people lose line of sight of the customer and you increase right, that, that separation. And so now you need 14 managers to coordinate these 19 people across these right, 12 departments that are involved. I think a big unlock is to really rethink the work and, and start to you know, design it in a way that people can do it from start to finish. Because as, as we know from psychology is that, that people need that sense of completion, the idea that you work on something that's, that's really important and meaningful, right? and not just like a tiny little piece. Um, so in my view, that's that's a big unlock. Right? But I also know that that oftentimes scares, uh, I think, a lot of leaders. I, th I think in general, this whole topic of employee engagement is, is an interesting phenomena because I think everybody agrees that it's important. People look at turnover, right? they look at engagement numbers, and they, they definitely realize that something is, is not working well. Work is broken. But I think they're also really, really afraid to have a conversation around like what could better look like because it requires, I think, a very different way of leading, a very different lens, right? I mean, organizations, I think, since the 1980s have become very shareholder-driven. The quarterly earnings, right, that, that kind of like sets the tone. And and I feel like we lost something along the way. And so I think there's this very short-termism, but you don't build a new culture overnight, right? You don't develop like these leadership, these servant leadership skills overnight. So I think uh, it's like losing weight. It's like people say, of course I should lose weight, of course it's, but it's, but it's hard to get on the treadmill. It's hard to motivate yourself. You realize it's not going to happen overnight. So I feel like people are still looking for that silver bullet. And whether it's like employee engagement software that, that pokes people every two minutes and right, gives them kudos or, or you know, right, managers can hand out little team building exercise. But I feel like people are looking for a shortcut. Um, what, what do you think? Yeah, I've, there's so much you said there that I could comment on. I think definitely yes to all the above. And I think the hard part is not only can you not do a lot of the things overnight, like create a new culture, bring your engagement numbers up, like not only can you not do it overnight, but like you're not going to see the ROI overnight either. It's going to be there. And it's amazing. We've all seen the data and the studies. We know that once it's happening, it's like, wow, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and then I think in our culture, U.S. specifically, we're always looking for the, the pill or the magic, like you said, that short-term thing, and we're not willing to put the work in. So I think you're spot on with that. Let's pretend we have like an enlightened leader, right, who says like, oh, my God, I look at those numbers. A third of my people turn over every year. Uh, that, that costs me a lot of money, although I can't see it on the P&L. But I want to do something about that. Um, how would you engage with them? How, how, do, how do you get started in your work with leaders? Yeah, that's a great question. I get that a lot, all the time now, as we, as we all do in this space, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I, what I've actually kind of developed a few tools like this where like a retention framework, a retention and engagement, um, like a diagnose and discover type of a thing. So it'll be like, I'll go in and I'll look at a lot of things, like a lot of data points, like the employee surveys and any other like turnover, like all kinds of just different data to get a real good grounding in that from a data perspective. And then also just talk to people and interview them and whatever. Um, but there's so many different levers and here's the other tricky part of it too. It's, it's tricky, but it's also a lot of opportunity which is great. If you think about like engagement and retention levers, let's just throw a number out there and say there's 10 top ones, right? Let's say that I've developed kind of 10 that for the most part, if you get these right, 
it's going to be amazing. But what we also know is that every organization is different, right? So for one organization, a recent client, for example, um, many of the levers didn't apply because they were doing great in many of those areas. But what did apply was they had, did not have appreciation and recognition programs. They had nothing around that people and the data showed this. Um, and then they also didn't have um, good work-life balance, right? So those are two of the levers. Great. But then another organization, it's like, oh, well, it's a toxic culture. Um, there isn't inclusion happening. So it really, I think it's, it's really a matter of we know these things that are really, really good overall. It's a matter of then kind of going in and tailoring it and diagnosing the organization and the people specifically as far as which of those levers are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. And so that's where I would typically start with a leader. You wrote an interesting post a couple of months ago um, about the return to office mandates. And we're seeing more and more of these, right? obviously Twitter, right? Elon Musk said, but you got to be 40 hours like a week in your seat. Uh, I think Goldman Sachs is, is demanding that people come back to the office full time. I think 50% of companies expect to be right, to go back to like people working full time five days a week this year. Another number I saw was like 95% of them expect people to come back to three or more days in the office. So so it's kind of like a remote work might might be over. How do you think this is going to play out in the long run? And what advice would you give a CEO that reaches out and says like you know, three years ago, we told everybody that they can work from home. I feel like they should come back. What would you tell them? Yeah, this is, I got to say, in the last couple of years, this is one of the most interesting, exciting, exhausting topics because everyone feels very strongly one way or the other on it, but it's very different depending on who you talk to. And so what I would say is, um, pushing people back in time and ignoring everything we've learned, we've experienced, and we've done and demonstrated is not going to work, especially long term. Um, we, it's, let's say we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube kind of a thing. And so this approach just makes organizations and leaders that do this, in my opinion, just easier to disrupt because there's a lot of organizations that are innovative and they're moving ahead with the times and the reality of what we've experienced and done and what we can do versus just trying to force everyone back in time. That's where I get that irrelevance piece. And I think that the orgs that do that are just slowly but surely going to become more irrelevant. So there's that piece. Um, there's other, there's three other psychological principles I want to pull out here that are at play that I think are causing a lot of this tension when, when people want, when leaders want their people to come back. And this would be, um, and you're probably familiar with these. So reactants, loss aversion and gaslighting. So first, when you think about like reactants, right? So We've all seen that like mandating people, like adults come back to work. We've seen that doesn't work. Um, we see that leaders don't like that because they think, well, why are people just not doing what I tell them to do? And, and what I would say to those leaders is, here's a tip. Treating adults who've just shown you what they could do and did do it for you and made you profitable during the pandemic to do something and treating them like children is just not going to work. And so this reactance piece, as you're probably familiar with, it's like, you know, one of our human needs is autonomy, right? And so if someone is basically demanding we do something as an adult, our inner rebel kind of emerges and it kind of pisses us off, pardon my language. And so that's one thing that I think is at play big time. And that's really going to cause lots of resistance as it already has. We've already seen the great resignation and all this stuff. And so that's one piece. The other part, when you think about loss aversion. Um, I think it was Kahneman and Tversky, I think a couple years ago had this 
I think they won the Nobel Prize for this, but they basically talked about the pain of losing something is twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining it, right? So now that employees have been treated like adults, they had their autonomy, they had their balance, and they were happier, felt more engaged, inclusive, all the great things that we had during the pandemic, and now leaders want to take it away. That means it's like two times as painful now. You know what I mean? So that's a thing that's it's at play right now that's making it really tough. And then gaslighting. I mean, something as simple as the fact that like, we're saying you have to come back and all this stuff. It's like telling people that we don't see and um, acknowledge what you've done for three years. We don't acknowledge that we could totally work fine, not ideal because it was a pandemic, but we could do it. And now we could do it even better. It's like not acknowledging that, which means kind of gaslighting what we've all gone through. So those are three tensions I think that are causing such a big problem with this. Um, and then if, when I coach leaders, cause they do ask this all the time, as you know, and what I tell them is I say, first of all, you need to look in the mirror and again, starting with yourself as that foundation, ask yourself, like, you, are there selfish reasons you want people back? Like you don't feel relevant when you're not in the office telling them what to do, or you don't know how to lead in this environment. If those are your reasons, which I think for many of these leaders, that's the case, you need to get straight on that. You need to figure that out because that's your ego. That's not reality. That's not like the most effective way to work necessarily. So you need to think about that, right? And think about like, there's a lot of ways to get upskilled and leading in this new world. And you can give me a call if you want some help, but there's plenty of coaching and things online that you can do to learn that. Um, I also tell them moving forward, you should focus on the fundamental issue. So after you figure out why you're asking it, right, then think about like the design and the practice of the work itself, to your point, the design of the work, like where does it actually need to be conducted, right? Does it have to be in an office? Maybe it needs to be in a laboratory. I get it. Totally get it. Listen to your people as well. Find out what they need to be their most productive and effective and engaged at work because that's another data point. And then you think about like objectives, right? Is it crucial to manage the worker's performance, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing like objectives, not like I'm seeing you sit in a chair in the office. So kind of thinking about objectives and outcomes versus the input. Um, and then also thinking about like that you want to maybe, I think at this point in time, really default to this high trust environment. You don't want to fall prey to the productivity paranoia, the surveillance, the monitoring, all that stuff. That's canceled. That's done. We need to stop doing that because that's not helping anybody, whether they're in the office or not. Um, so if you really want people to come back, I think at a minimum leaders need to get clear on all those things, first of all, like, and if they still really feel like we have to be in the office, we just do, then you need to get really clear on what the why is, right? Make it purposeful because people are not saying they don't ever want to come back. They're just saying like, I don't want to come back just because you're telling me to for some arbitrary reason, right? They want to come back to see their colleagues. They want to come back now and then there's all kinds of different dynamics there. So just figure out what the why is. I think Accenture calls it earning the commute, right? Make sure whatever you want to bring them into the office for, whether it's a meeting or, you know, bonding event or whatever, just make sure it's something that's like worth commuting for when you think about that, right? So there's that piece. And then, you know, make sure it adds value. Leaders, I feel like leaders can intentionally use the office to rebuild that social capital that workers lost during the pandemic, especially the younger workforce, like Gen Z. They want to come in and, you know, learn how the work is done and get mentored and get development and just see how it works in an office. They don't even know. Um, so just finding ways to do that and make it value add for people versus focusing on the demands, I think is helpful. Um, I've seen some people, some organizations rebrand the office as kind of like this high profile destination. So 
it's like all these really cool, immersive, engaging bonding experiences are happening. Maybe it's really cool guest speakers. I'm not talking just free lunch. That's not going to do it. That's not enough. But really interesting, cool things that they can't do virtually. If you can make that happen in the office, that's a really good way to kind of make it more of a magnet, not mandate situation. Um, In-person rituals, if you create some new kind of along those lines, like, like every once a month or every Monday or something, there's something really like a ritual that we do as a team. And it's really, really, you know, you show them how we're coming together to do this, doing that kind of stuff. And then again, like I said, listening to them, co-creating, experimenting, learning what's going on, iterating based on what you're hearing and what people are doing. I think those are all some tools that I've, I've um, given leaders during the last several months slash years. So what about you? Do you have others that you would add to that you've seen be very successful? First of all, I think, I think that was a, that was an excellent, um, uh, summary and and I loved your your point about like, the the inner rebel. I can definitely associate it with that. Right, that right. If we if we tell people to do something, I think we're all adults, right? And we don't like to be told. One thing I find amazing is that as you do that, it also tests your willpower as a leader, right? Because you tell you got a hundred people in your organization, you say everybody has to be back on Monday. So what happens if people don't come back, or only some people come back? Right, and and they might have good reasons. Right, couldn't get childcare, missed the commute, whatever. You know, it's like. Uh, but then you have the scenario that you have people coming into the office, and right, there's like twenty people there, and they're like, "Why did I waste my time coming in here?" Now you got to deal with the the people that didn't show up, and and now you got to demonstrate that you're really sincere about it. Right, so although you're short staffed, right now you got to so like push people away and discipline them, and, and you know make them even more upset. Um, so it seems like a lose-lose situation. And even when people come into the office, if all you do is like put your headphones on and, and, and sit on Zoom calls, then right, again, right, I could have done that at home in my bunny slippers. So I think to your point, right, you got to earn the commute, right? I love that. I love that expression. I think it's this fundamental insecurity that people have about like, how do I know whether people actually work? And I think what that suggests to me is that we actually have very poor measures of productivity so like at the individual level. We just don't know, right? And so we use kind of like our like visual indicator of like, oh, that person looks very busy, right? It's like the, the olden days where you're like, you know, you're like, right, 5,000 letters in your inbox. Gee, you must be, right, a very busy person that you have so much work coming at you. Um, so I, I, I feel like it, it, it points to like a problem that then leaders don't feel like they... Right? They have the tools to address, right? So, so again, they're going like for the proxy of like, well, at least I have people sitting in the office, so I can kind of like, you know feel good about everybody being productive. Um, but I think that for me is like the the underlying issue there that you know if if we actually had some data that would tell us, right? Gee, you know, it's like the people that work remote are better. Um, then then that might be a different thing. I mean, Zuckerberg in his latest layoff thing, right? I think talked about, right, that, that, you know, they collected some initial, they did some initial analysis and they found that people are together in the office are more productive than people who are not, right? I just would love to see the data and I'd love to get some transparency on that. I can see the benefit of an in-office environment for a lot of, um, for a lot of uh, uh, employee groups, I think for a lot of uh, professions, if you're like in an apprenticeship model, right? Both you and I, right, we worked in consulting, so, so you learn a lot from your colleagues, right? You don't really learn a lot just typing right by yourself on the screen. So I think those things are important, but I think it needs to be, um, yeah, I just don't see a lot of intentionality there.
Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. And to your point, this is one of the biggest problems we've had for a long time, and it's got an easy fix. The easy fix is get more accurate measures of productivity, right? So I don't care whether that, that may be something like, oh, we just meet as a salesperson, I just need you to hit your numbers. I don't care if it's one sale that's really big. I don't care if it's done the last day at the last hour of the month, but you were never in the office. Awesome. Whatever it might be. But to your point, let's find out what we what those real needle movers are. What is that real um, lead measure is what I would call it. Right. That's actually the productivity. And then who the hell cares how you get there or when you get there or how you get there? You know. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. So so everybody I, I want to make a sh short detour. Um, everybody talks about chat GPT and AI. What are your thoughts on this? Is this a distraction, the latest shiny toy and right, everybody jumps on it like we jumped on crypto and blockchain and so forth only to find out two or three years later, yeah, you know, maybe it didn't change the world or do you think this is really a, a, a game changer and so CEOs are kind of justified to say, why care about the employee experience if, you know, right, AI can right, replace all these people, so to speak, right? What are your thoughts? This is a really good question. First of all, I would tell you that I have been playing a lot with GPT over the past couple of weeks, and I am very impressed. I actually told it that it did a great job, and it actually came back in a very human response and said, yeah, thanks so much for letting me know. Let me know if I can help with anything else. I mean, just, I don't know. I think it's still got a ways to go, obviously, but I've been very impressed with it. Um, and to your other point, this is something that I haven't really shared with a lot of people, but I was actually kind of thinking a little while ago when we started seeing all these return to office and kind of all these, like, I don't know, just really um, adversarial kind of relationships between leaders and their people, not all leaders, but some of these leaders, I kind of started thinking all these different things in the back of my mind, like exactly what you just said. Maybe at some point they're going to be like, hey, screw it. I don't care. I'm so sick of trying to engage these people. I'm just going to go get a bunch of robots and AI and just replace them. And that may happen. That may or may not. But what I would say is I've been doing a lot of this digital transformation and automation and AI robotics type of um, change management projects for years. And I, I don't think, I mean, I, I know people get scared and they're worried about it. Just like anything else in the past, I think that it is exciting and it's definitely changing things, but I don't think it means jobs are going away. It means parts of jobs are going away, which is great. It's usually the really annoying, redundant, non-human part, and then we get to do the exciting work. So I don't, I, mean, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, I do think it is changing things, but it's not, it, it's more like, it's just a natural course, I think, of evolution and innovation, right? So whether that's, and we think about like the industrial era, we think about the information, like all these different things that have happened. I think this is just the next iteration of that. So what do you think? I think it presents an opportunity to really empower people. I think you can use like this technology two ways. You could say, we'll design it at the top, right? And I don't know if that's what like Zuckerberg is doing, right? But like, we make decisions at the top and then we don't need all these pesky humanoids. And so then, you know, we can be five times as profitable as we were before. Or you could look at us as like, this is a tool that every employee should have and be able to master. Let's train and equip them and, and, and unleash like the power of like, right? The entire organization. And, and I would hope that more companies go down the second path educate their workforce on how to use this as a tool and, and it unleashes like a, a wave of really cool experiments um, and, and entrepreneurialism in an organization. But my spidey sense tells me it probably is going to end up in the first place that somebody says, you know, let's just, right, 
let's use this technology to right get get you know reduce human uh, human effort in the organization. Um, because again, I think it's just so, so tempting, right? If I mean, I, I yesterday I saw somebody talk about um, having played with ChatGPT and decided that he's not going to hire any more marketeers, right? Because this can write better marketing copy, right? And I feel I feel like that's like the the default uh, instinct that that many leaders will have. I think you're right. One thing, and I'm writing about this a little bit in the book that I'm doing. I think that over the years, especially since the Industrial Revolution, and this is part of what you were talking about earlier about job design and how it's basically, it's it's not, the meaning isn't there because we've stripped it away, right? Because we don't have jobs where you do from the beginning to the end, you own it, you're an author, you know. What I would say is I think over the last, I guess, century at this point in time, the work has become much more, no matter what industry, for the most part, it's become much more machine-like and mechanistic. And to your point, like, I'm not a... a whether I'm in a factory and I'm just doing this one little part here over and over and over, like it's, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but what I would say is as it's gotten become more mechanistic in that way, I think now we're at a point where basically the machines can do, like you said, AI robots, machines, they can do all of that kind of repetitive mechanistic stuff. But that means that there's a huge opportunity right now. And that means for humans that things that the machines can't do, robots can't do AI can't yet do. Um, I think that that's an amazing, that's like our highest, most peak intellectual capabilities and our empathy and, and just, you know, the way that our most human capabilities basically is what we need to be doing. So to your example, about the marketer, I agree. The copy is pretty amazing with some of these things, but then they can go and employ those more human and empathic skills, I think in other ways, but that's to your point, it's going to take organizations setting the work up that way. Right. So we'll see. Yeah, no, it's, I, I think it's going to be fascinating uh, to see how it plays out. Tell us about your book. What are you working on? Yes, I'm very excited. It's I'm almost done writing it right now. It's been a real labor of love. <laughs> um, but basically, it's it's thinking kind of what we talked about a little bit earlier, right? So it's, it's I'm trying to address this big question on everyone's mind, which is like, how do we attract, retain, unlock, engage our people, right? How do we do it? Because we're having all these issues and problems and whatever and there's many flavors of it. So the, the, the book is meant to answer that question, but I'm positioning it in a way where it's kind of like, again, thinking of the organization as a product for your people, right? Not just customers, but also employees. And really, how does that look and how do some of those um, similar things, how do some of those similar ways and frameworks that you would organize it for employee or customer experience, how does that play into the employee experience and how you would actually attract, retain and unlock your talent? Very interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. And if people want to learn more about your work and about what you do and maybe how you can help them, where should they go? Yes, I would say um, a couple places. So I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect out there. I loved um, chatting with folks about different things. I've got my own website, which is tennielmiller.com. And then my organization is Experience and Transformation. So the website is one word, experienceandtransformation.com. Wonderful. Excellent. We'll put those links also into the post so, you know, people don't need to transcribe it and can easily access it. Um, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. And uh, yeah, wishing you all the best with the book. Thank you so much, Tonil. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.